If you'll stay standing for the reading of God's Word this morning, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. It says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we, uh, as Zach said earlier, God, we are so thankful for the privilege that we have to gather together uh, as the people of God in the place of God to, to meet with you, to, to hear from you, to sing to you. God, our desire right now is that as we open up your word, that you would, by your spirit, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, Prepare our whole self to receive your word, to hear what you have to say, and to be changed by your word. God, that's our desire, is to see Jesus, to behold him, and to be made like him. And so, God, my prayer is that now that you would use your word to transform and to sanctify each and every single one of us, God that we would not leave here looking exactly like we did when we came in, but that we would be more like your son. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, hey, um, good morning. How are we doing? Hey, if you've got a lively bunch, I love it. I hope, I hope you're, I hope you're, ma- let's keep it that way. That's what I'm saying. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That is where we are camping out this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, my name, for those who may be new while you're getting situated, my name is Trey Dove. I'm one of the pastors here at Hutto Bible Church. Uh, it is my joy and my privilege to get to preach the Word of God this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, I hope I will soon, either after service, um, at our men's cookout tomorrow, or at our news co- newcomer's lunch uh, this afternoon. Um, I, I, I would love to get to meet you. Um, and again, I have the privilege and joy of being able to preach this morning on... I, Honestly, I think my favorite topic, my favorite thing, if there's one thing I could, I could just spend the rest of my life preaching and teaching about, it would be the thing that we get to talk about today, which is the local church. I love, I love that I get to preach and teach on the local church, and that's because I just love the church. I, I love the local church, and more specifically, I love this local church. I mean, there are other great local churches, but man, do I love this church. Do I love Huddle Bible? Do I love those of you who call this your home? And so I'm, I am eager and excited to, uh, to dive into 1 Corinthians 5 this morning. Now, um, I want to share a story with you. Uh, so if, if, you were, if you've been around here for a while, then you may know a little bit about my story. When I got hired at this church to join the pastoral staff uh, about six years ago, I was hired uh, to be the student ministry pastor. And so I served in student ministry for five years working with teenagers. They were five beautiful, wonderful, um, sweaty, obnoxious years, but they were amazing, amazing, and I loved it, and I made a ton of incredible memories with the leaders, with the students, with all of the people um, kind of in that space as I got to run there, and, and one of the memories that I made, one of my favorite memories, uh, comes from uh, one of our summer retreats. Every summer, we would take students to Florida, to Panama City Beach, Florida, 
uh, for a week. Why? I don't know, because it was fun. But we did it, and we continue to do it. And so this one particular summer, uh, we also, we, we would hire a group of interns. So every summer we hire a group of college interns. Um, among other things, one of the responsibilities that we would give them was to plan out all of the games that we were going to play when we would go to Florida. That was one of them. So if we're going to have a big beach game, like they were responsible for that. Or if we were going to have games before each of our sessions, they were responsible for that. And so this one year I had a particular group of interns and they came to me before our Florida trip with an idea for a pre-session game. Uh, and, and I will tell you, this idea was wonderfully, masterfully deviant, um, which meant I was on board. And so they said, here was their idea. They said, here's our idea. Um, an ice cream sundae eating competition. Sounds delightful, right? Now, here's the kicker. You can't use your hands. So, you gotta have, so students are going to have to have their hands tied behind their back. And I was like, okay, sounds messy. I'm for that. And so... So we moved forward with it. They bought all the supplies. They bought the the ice cream. They bought the toppings. They bought everything that you would need. They bought a wonderful spread. And it came time to play the game. We announced it to the students. Hey, we're going to, this is the game we're playing. Raise your hand if you want to play. And everybody raised their hands because we've done some repulsive things in student ministry. This was not one of them, right? So they were like, this is my time. If I'm going to be in anything, it's this game. And so hands are going up. We picked our four or five students and they came forward and, and we gave them all the supplies and said, okay, build your ice cream sundae. So they started building it and they scooped the ice cream and we scooped the ice cream because they had to have a certain amount. But they got to put whatever toppings, chocolate, caramel, uh, whipped cream, sprinkle, cherry, I mean, all of it, the works, right? And so the stage was set. We had tied their hands behind their back. They're kind of, they were like on their knees at this little thing, like they were ready to go. Now, there was one detail that we withheld from those students. That detail was this. It wasn't ice cream. It was mayonnaise. Uh, so we had the interns had, uh, had bought gallons of mayonnaise, emptied out those big plastic tubs of ice cream, and then replaced it with mayonnaise, put it in the freezer, and let it sit in the freezer for about three or four days so that when you scooped it, it was as creamy and as solid as ice cream. And so... It was set, right? They didn't know. We knew. And so we give the countdown. The music starts. Three, two, one, smack. Their heads go in the ice cream. And instantly, like you can see the like, like on their face, they knew the level of deception that had just happened. Like they, one moment and they were like, what? Like it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. Um, it was terribly messy. Uh, the joke landed, but at a cost, but it was awesome nonetheless. Now, why would I share this story with you? Well, For this point, okay, this is, you're going to want to take this home. Here's the point. Ice cream is not mayonnaise, (laughs) right? Right, Josh? Seems self-evident. Ice cream is not mayonnaise. I mean, ice cream is sweet, and comparatively, mayonnaise is quite unsavory. Now, I suppose there's a scenario in which you uh, can convince yourself that mayonnaise is a suitable substitute for ice cream, but but to do that would be to your detriment, right? So, you might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 5? What does this have to do with the local church? And I'm going to tell you, basically nothing, but it will. I want you to hold on to this illustration. I want you to put it in your back pocket because it's, I'm going to come back to it. I promise you. So 
Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you my, my big idea for 1 Corinthians 5 this morning, okay? If you're a note taker, I don't want you to be frustrated with me because it's kind of long, but it's just a mashup of my two main points. So if you don't get the whole thing now, I promise you, you'll have at least two more opportunities to basically get it, okay? So here's the big idea. The local church has the high call of protecting, pursuing, and celebrating the purity that is hers in Christ. The local church has the high call of protecting, pursuing, and celebrating the purity that is hers in Christ. And so to that end, here's my first main point, and you'll see what I mean. Main point number one, the local church has the high call of protecting, protecting the purity that is hers in Christ. So this is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So in our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians so far, we've seen Paul deal with a number of issues. He's addressed the divisions in the church which have formed around some of the key leaders. He's addressed the foolishness of the leadership and consequently the people in the church themselves as they have drifted away from the cross of Christ looking for wisdom in worldly resources. He's addressed the spiritual complacency that has taken root in the hearts of the Corinthians as a consequence of the pride and arrogance that has spread out from the leadership into the hearts of the men and women in the local church. As Paul says in chapter four, verse eight, he says, already you have all that you want. Right, if you were here last week, Pastor Michael said that basically, basically they had begun to believe that, that they had reached the mountaintop spiritually. That, that in a sense that there was nowhere else for them to go. There was no more room to grow because they have all that they, like they've, they've arrived spiritually. They had believed that. But as Bobby said on week one of the series, the Corinthians had forgotten who they are and whose they are, which has had devastating consequences on this local church. And in chapter five, Paul begins to address yet another consequence of their forgetfulness. So Paul's received reports that there is a case of sexual immorality happening in the church that is so detestable, so vile, and so grotesque that even if the pagans knew, like if the pagans knew what was going on, their response would be reproof. He says a man in this church is sleeping with his stepmother. Now that alone, I think, is enough to kind of shock our senses, right? You read, you read that and you're kind of like, well, that's gross, but... The worst of it isn't in Paul's report. The worst of it comes in Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians' response. He says that they're arrogant. The NIV translates it as they're proud. And so a a type of sexual behavior that makes even the pagans blush is happening in your church and you are boasting about it. You are celebrating it. You are proud of it. Now, there's a lot of debate as to to why they would be this way. Like, why, why is this their response? It seems, uh, it seems likely to me, though, that this 
response is uh, this posture of acceptance or tolerance is a, to them, in their mind, it's a sign of their maturity. Like it's an expression of their freedom in Christ. We celebrate this because of how mature we are. And Paul says, why don't you grieve? Why don't you mourn? Like this is happening right beneath your nose. Why don't you grieve it? And his instruction to the church is this, remove him from among you. In fact, as if to say it once wasn't enough, Paul wants to make sure they get it. And so he gives it to them three different times in three different ways. In verse two, he just says it plainly, remove him from among you. In verse seven, he uses a metaphor uh, talking about the, the leaven and the unleavened. Hey, if there's some leaven in the unleavened bread, you need to get that stuff out. And then in verse 13, he quotes Deuteronomy 13.5, which I think is the most pointed of them all, where he says, purge the evil person from among you. He has no place in this congregation. Not if he's doing that. Then in verses three through five, Paul instructs them to come together as one assembly, as one body, and to pronounce judgment on this man. Now, understand what Paul is is saying. In effect, he's saying, I've already pronounced my judgment. I've already cast my vote with the concern of a father and the authority of an apostle. I've made up my mind. I'm just inviting you in. Join me in pronouncing judgment against this man's sin. Now, if it helps, imagine a courtroom setting, right? You've got this man. There's been a case made against him. Doesn't look great. The evidence has been examined. Paul says he's guilty of all charges. And here is the sentencing in verse 5. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I might imagine that there's at least one person in this room who's thinking, okay, whoa, 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 Paul. Whoa, 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 pastor, right? Whoa, 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 Paul. Like whatever happened to, hey, love the sin or hate the sin, right? What, what, about, what about Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5? Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, Paul. What about that? What about when, when Jesus says, hey, don't focus on the speck in your brother's eye because you got a log in your own. What about that, Paul? What about Galatians 6.1, Paul, where you, you tell us that if a brother's in sin, we are to restore him with a spirit of gentleness. To hand him over? Paul, that just feels unloving. Paul, that feels like too much. Paul, that is not what the church is supposed to be. Here's my question. Do you honestly believe you're more loving than the Apostle Paul? Here's a better question. Do you honestly believe you're more loving than God? Because God himself directed and inspired Paul to write the words that he wrote to the church in Corinth. No, it would be unloving not to do this. Now, I think there's a rub for some of us. Maybe not all of us, but I think for some of us there's a rub. And here's what I think that rub is. We might hear this and think, well, what does this mean for my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? Right? What does this mean for my coworker or for my family member or for my friend? Like, what does this mean for the people that I love who do not know Jesus? Am I supposed to, am I supposed to go around like casting judgment on them for their sinful behavior? Well, by God's grace, Paul knew you were going to ask that. And so he answered it in verse 12. He says, 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Meaning those outside the church, those who are not members of the church, those who are not believers. What do I have to do with judging them? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In verse 13, he he essentially says, no, 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 God's, God's the ultimate judge. That's not my place. Verses 10 through 11, Paul essentially says, if I were to disassociate myself with everybody outside of the church based on their sinful behavior, guess what? I would have to leave the world. Like I would have to leave planet. Listen, if we were to disassociate with people outside of this church because of their sinful behavior, we would have to leave the world. So if you've got Elon's number, you go ahead and give him a call. You go ahead and book a one-way, non-stop flight to the moon. Bobby and I and the elders are going to make plans to plant a church on the moon because we got to get out of here if that's the case. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. Listen, to do that would be antithetical to the mission and the purpose of the church. That's not what I'm talking about. No, Paul's response is, I'm not talking about them. His response is, I don't have authority over them. What I'm saying right now is not for them. That's not what they need. I'm talking about something else. Paul's saying, I want you to pronounce judgment on this man inside your church for his sin. You are to remove him. You are to hand him over. Now, while implicit, it may not be assumed that to be able to pronounce judgment requires that there's a standard by which we judge, right? And there is. Church, there is. The standard is the Word of God. Where the Scriptures speak, they speak authoritatively, and the Word of God does not mince words, nor does it muddy the waters on issues of morality, because God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of clarity, and He's good. His word is good. His standard is good because it comes from him. It can be no other than good. And it is not subjective. It is objective, meaning it's not open for discussion nor debate. The word of God is the standard. Now, look at verse 11. Paul says, Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So if you notice, Paul's conversation here began with an individual in the church, one who is guilty of sexual immorality. But since Paul has expanded his instruction to include a broader scope of sinful behavior. Now, behavior is the operative word. Paul's not addressing sinful desire. He's not addressing uh, sinful motive. He's addressing sinful behavior, and he lists six different things. Now, five of those six, if you happen to notice, are an abuse or an affront on people. They take advantage of people, other people. And then the sixth one, idolatry, is a direct affront on the holiness of God. And these people, Paul says, they bear the name brother. So what does that mean? It means they walk into your church on Sunday, they shake your hand, they give you a hug, they give you a holy kiss on the cheek, they go to their seat, the same one they sit in every single Sunday, and they boastfully proclaim, I'm one of you. 
And Paul says, have nothing to do with them. In fact, he goes so far as to say, don't even eat with them. Don't share a meal with them. Listen, church, I'm with you here, okay? Chick-fil-A's anointed. The Spirit can do something through Chick-fil-A in the hearts of men, okay? Paul's saying, yeah, don't even eat Chick-fil-A with them. Have nothing to do. You disassociate yourself from this person. Why? He says, so as to communicate with absolute clarity that as the church, we can no longer give validation to the authenticity of your faith. Or in other words, to put it differently, so as to say, as the church, you have no warrant for believing you're a Christian. You are not one of us. This action is commonly referred to as church discipline. Now, it's important to know, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us uh, some, some guidance on how to go about church discipline. I'm not going to read it all. It's in 18, verses 15 through 20, but, but here are the steps as it proceeds. Step one, if a brother's in sin and you know about it, you go to him in private, you confront the sin, and if he repents, you praise God because you just want a brother back. Now, if he doesn't, you move to step two. You take one or two folks with you as witnesses uh, to these charges that are being brought up against him. And if he repents, you praise God, you just want a brother back. If he doesn't repent, you move to step three. You bring it before the church. And if he repents, praise God, you just want your brother back. But Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning you treat him like an unbeliever, as someone who doesn't know Jesus. Listen, church, we're not called to kick sinners out of church. Because guess what? If that were the case, you just go ahead and stand up. Let's pack it up. Let's get out of here. None of us would be here if that were the case. We're not just removing sinful people from the the body. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what church discipline is. But we are, in protecting the purity of the church, we are to remove those from fellowship in the local church who are so committed to their sin that they're unwilling to respond in repentance. Now, some have asked, like in the membership class, it gets asked, well, how often does this actually happen? And and to the degree in this church, to the degree that somebody is removed from fellowship, rarely, like less than five in like the, the almost 15 years that we've existed as a church that I'm aware of. It doesn't happen that often, but church discipline happens all the time, even in this church. And and it happens when you sit down over a cup of coffee with a brother or a sister and one of you says, listen, hey, because I love you, I need to draw your attention to some inconsistencies. I've I've seen some things that need to be addressed. That's called church discipline. Now, what's the end goal of a process like church discipline? Well, it's twofold. The first is to protect the overall purity and health of the church and her witness. Listen, sin is a cancer to the body. 
to the local church body, sin is cancerous and its, and its end is only ever destruction. Or to use Paul's Passover metaphor here, it's leaven and the church is like a lump of unleavened bread. And so when, it, when the leaven gets in, it destroys the whole lump. Sin destroys the whole lump. If it's not snuffed out and removed, it spreads and it taints the whole loaf. And it hurts our witness. Like if you think of the situation in Corinth for just a second, like honestly, what does the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth have to offer the unbelieving Jew and Greek if the the sexual immorality inside the church is so bad that it makes them blush? Like what kind of grace does the church have to offer? What kind of power to, to mortify sin and experience true flourishing does the church have to offer if their sin makes the pagan blush? Why would they want what the church has to offer if the church looks no different from them? At least in this case, they looked worse than they did. Now don't, don't give me mayonnaise and tell me it's ice cream. I'm not buying that. See, the church can't be a light shining forth the glories of God from the mountaintop if the light has been snuffed out. If salt loses its taste, what is it good for? Might as well throw it out, trample on it. The second goal of church discipline is to lead the individual towards repentance and salvation. I think a helpful illustration for this is... uh, a parable given by Jesus in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. You may know it, but as the story goes, you've, you've got a young boy who comes to his father and he basically says, Daddy, I wish you were dead so I could have all your money, but since you're not, why don't you give it to me anyways? That's my translation, right? Now, I've, I've got a two-year-old daughter myself. She speaks in mostly complete, coherent sentences at this point. If she came to me and said, Daddy, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. Can I have your money anyways? I would say, oh, baby, that's not going to happen. Why don't you go get me the spanking spoon, right? That's how that's going to play out. But the father in the story doesn't do that. What does he do? He, he gives his son the money and his son goes and he spends it on all the, the sex and the food and the drink and the pleasure that his money could buy. And when he runs out, he's eating what the pigs eat because he's just so hungry. And then he thinks, well, maybe if I go back to my dad, he'll give me a job and a place to stay. I'll just work for him. So he goes home and before he can make it, his father sees him down the road. He hikes up his skirt and he runs. He runs and then he grabs him. He says, my son who was lost is now found. And then he throws a party for him. See, the hope behind church discipline is that the prodigal would come home. And in some cases, they don't. And as the church, we grieve it. We mourn it. But when they do, we rejoice and we celebrate because our brother, our sister who was lost is found. They were gone, but they've come home by God's grace. Now, just quickly, I suspect that there are a few reasons. I have four in my notes um, for why we have a hard time with messages like this, generally speaking. The first is that on like a personal level, we obsess over our sin and failure to the degree that we think, oh, what a wretched sinner I am. Like, who am I? They got a speck in there, but I can't get this log out of my eye. Who am I to address their sin? I would just be a hypocrite. And I'm just, I'm just telling you that hurts the church 
when you do not step into that space, but we are immobilized. We're immobilized by our own sin, our own failure, our own baggage. We think, well, who am I? That would just be so hypocritical for me to step into that space. I think the second thing is we don't want to be disliked. Bobby's talked about this. We've talked about this, that this is our kryptonite that we do not want to step into a conversation or a confrontation where the end result might be that someone thinks poorly of us. And so we just, we just stay back and we just let it happen because we, we would rather, we don't want to be the yucky people. The third is that we don't want to deal with our own sin. I mean, why, why would I open the door to your sin when, when I want the door shut? Why would I shine a light on your sin when I know that you've got a light in your back pocket that you can pull out and shine right back on me, baby? I don't want that. I'd rather keep the door shut. I'd rather keep it in the dark. So I'm, I'm, not, gonna, I'm not gonna step into this space because there might be consequences for me and I don't like that. But honestly, honestly, those three, I think, flow out of the fourth and the biggest problem. It's that we've lost a proper view of the holiness of God. What's happened broadly in evangelicalism is that we have pitted the grace of God against the holiness of God as if they were enemies. And what I mean by that is that to bolster the message of grace, we've de-emphasized the message of God's holiness. Now that's something that we've done, but the angels haven't. Like the angels are flying around the throne room singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, constantly. But we think, well, how do you make grace more appealing? You just lower the bar. (laughs) You diminish the transcendence of God. You pollute the purity of God and you normalize the absolute otherness of God. But, But listen, what makes grace so sweet is that he gave it to you. What makes grace so sweet is that he gave it to me. What makes grace so sweet is that he gave it, a holy God gave it to to rebels and to sinners and to scoundrels. Listen, grace is not good if God is not holy. And I want you to get this. The degree to which you taste the sweetness of God's grace depends entirely upon the degree to which you find sin unsavory where sin no longer tastes unsavory, grace becomes stale. You forget how good ice cream tastes because you've been just feasting on mayonnaise for whatever reason. Or to say it like this, if you don't hate your sin, you cannot love grace. Now Jesus said, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church, that's a promise. I'm gonna hang my hat on that. But can I just tell you, local churches die. Like the the doors shut. They die when the church will not deal with their sin. It is a cancer, and we have an obligation to protect the purity of the church. That's my first point. Now to my second main point. It will be much, much more brief, I promise. The second main point is that the church has the high call of pursuing and celebrating the purity that is hers in Christ. 
you look at verses 7 and 8, we've already read this, but again, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so what is Paul saying? Well, uh, first he says, protect the purity. We've talked about that. And then he says, pursue it and celebrate it. Why? Because because it's yours, because you've already been made pure through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, meaning through the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, his blood has cleansed you. It's purified you. It has made you holy. And so protect this, pursue it, celebrate it because it's yours. It's who you are because of Jesus. You've been made pure, been called holy by the blood of Jesus, the spotless lamb. Church, this is who you are. Like in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. In 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so all this stuff about church discipline and and removing the sinner and all of that is because this is yours. Like, this is yours. This is who you are in Christ, beloved church. Do you know that you're holy? Do you know that you've been purified? Now, you might think, well, I don't really, I don't really believe that. <laughs> At least it's hard to believe that. Or you might think, well, I have a hard time feeling. Like, I don't feel holy. Well, if you're in Christ, you are. Because that's what the blood does. So to the church, Paul then is saying, be who you are. Go be who you are. Now, not in the, not in the 2022 kind of way. We hear that and our ears perk up because that means something else right now. But, but, but in the most true and beautiful and glorious kind of way, be who you are. Be holy because of Jesus. You're holy. So go and be holy. Abhor your sin. Hate it. Kill it. When you see it in the church, you confront it gently. And then you rejoice and you celebrate because God has made you holy. So now you get to go and be holy. The sweetness of God's grace is that it does not simply save you, church, but it's the same blood, it's the same cross, it's the same grace that empowers me to actually be holy as God himself is wonderfully and beautifully and gloriously holy. And so here's my application. It's two questions. I want you to take them home with you. First question is this. Do you hate your sin? Is it unsavory to you? Like when you see it springing up in your speech, when you see it springing up in your actions or behaviors, do you hate it? Do you want to kill it? When you see it in brothers and sisters, do you grieve it and then confront it? 
In Genesis 4, we read as God spoke to, to Cain, if you recall, Cain and Abel, that tragedy of a story. God says to him, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Will you let it is the question. And then the second is this, do you love the holiness of God? Do you love the holiness of God, church? Be holy because you already are. Be holy because God is holy. Be holy because Christ died to purchase for you this holiness. It's yours. So be who you are. Be holy. Protect the purity of the church. Pursue the holiness of God by putting sin to death and rejoice and celebrate because Christ has made you holy by the power of his precious blood. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God is the song that just fills, it fills the throne room even now. And as your people, God, my desire, my hope, our prayer is that that would be the song that fills our hearts. It would be the song that just overflows. God, that because you've made us holy in Christ, we would go forth and be holy by your grace. As we move into a time of communion, God, I pray right now that, that you would, would help us. God, as we come to the table, I pray right now that, that you would bring sin. If there's, if there's indwelling sin, if there's undealt with sin, unrepentant sin, I pray, God, that you would bring that stuff to the surface, that we would deal with it now. God, that we would repent. And that by your grace, once again, we would receive forgiveness. God, thank you that it's by the blood that we are cleansed, we are purified, we are made holy. That's a work that we couldn't do. But it was by your grace, and it's that same grace that allows us, that empowers us to be who we are. So God, help us to do that, to rejoice and to celebrate in who we are because we are in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the Passover, uh, if you remember the story in the book of Exodus, in the Passover event, uh, God redeemed the people of Israel uh, from, from bondage, from their bondage as they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And in the story we read, the angel of death passed over the land, taking the life of every firstborn Egyptian child, sparing only those whose doorposts were painted with the blood of the Passover lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish. On recounting this event, one commentator wrote, the blood purifies and protects from the destroyer. After the sacrifice, the people consecrate themselves as holy in eating the Passover, which sustains and sanctifies them. And church, that's what we get to do in the Lord's table. That as we come forward, we come forward taking the elements and saying it was through the body and it was through the blood that I've been made holy and now am being sustained and sanctified by God's grace. The same body, the same blood that saved, that purified, 
It's the body and the blood that sustains and sanctifies. And so, church, as we come forward for communion, we, uh, we practice open communion at this church, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to, to participate with us. And so, as the band plays, you are free to move around the room. You're free to come up to grab the elements and then take them back to your seat with you, and we will take them together as a church. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he and his disciples were gathered together to celebrate that momentous event, the Passover. And it was the unleavened bread of the Passover feast that Jesus took and broke and said to his disciples, this is my body. Now today, nearly 2,000 years later, we continue uh, to participate in that same celebration. Why? Well, because Jesus, our Passover lamb, As Paul identifies him in 1 Corinthians 5, our Passover lamb was sacrificed for us, his church, to redeem us from our own bondage. And so we too eat so as to be sustained and sanctified by God's grace through our remembrance of Christ's death on our behalf. And so together, church, the body broken for you, take and eat. Similarly, Jesus, he took the cup during the Passover feast and he said, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what does the blood do? Well, it purifies everything it touches. It purifies all that it covers and it does not fail. So church, this morning, taste the sweetness of God's grace. You are holy because Christ has made you holy. Take and drink. God, we just thank you again for Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us, broken for us, blood shed for us so that we would be purified. We are so, so thankful. Help us to grow in our thankfulness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. church, do you know that you are holy? You know that you're holy because if you are in Christ, that's what the blood does. It cleanses you from all impurity. Your sin forgiven, washed white as snow. Now standing holy before a holy God because of your position in Christ. And so my encouragement to you as you go out this week is be holy because God is holy. Be holy because Christ has made you holy. Church, go out and be holy because that's who you are. Go be who you are. Go be who you are, church. Uh, If you would like to pray, myself, any elders in the service will be up front. If you have any questions or if you just want to shake our hand and get to know us, say hi. We will be up here. But otherwise, church, we love you. Have an amazing Sunday, an amazing week. You're dismissed. Grace and peace.